I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the epistle of Jude as we continue our verse by verse study through it. The little book of Jude right before the book of Revelation. And I have entitled my discourse to you this morning, The Sinister and Secret Motives of an Apostate. We will be focusing primarily on verses 4 through 7 this morning. But let's pick it up at the end of verse 3 where Jude exhorts all of us to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Then in verse four, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Last week, we examined the burden of Jude's heart and God's clear exhortation to each and every one of us as believers to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That is to continuously fight with all of our might to proclaim and protect the truth. That truth that is contained in the Holy Scriptures, the truth that God revealed to us once and for all time and eternity, that truth that never again needs to be repeated, that body of truth that was not discovered by men, but revealed to men by God and delivered ultimately to the ones whom he has set apart for himself in eternity past. That is actually the exegesis of that whole text. And now he begins to describe the reasons why it is so important to do this thing, to contend for the faith. And before we look at the text this morning, may I say once again that I fear that all too often many Christians have a cavalier attitude towards contending for the faith. This very clear and serious exhortation. You might want to ask yourself, how many times... Do you pray to the Lord to help you in contending for the faith in some specific situation? How many times have you boldly stood up against error? Many times I talk with other pastors from other parts of the country and other places around the world. And whenever we get onto this subject, you will find some, not all, but some and frankly, many that will say, oh, we don't want to contend too hard for certain things in the Bible because it's too divisive. If we do that, we might lose people. Well, the attitude in Scripture is so. That's what truth is supposed to do. 
It's to divide error from truth. And for people to say that it's too divisive to haggle, for example, over doctrine, and certainly I don't appreciate the word haggle, but, but to defend a doctrinal truth, to say that that is too divisive would be to say that the Lord really blew it in John 6, where, as you will recall, he lost a massive following that were coming after him simply because he contended earnestly for the truth. So may I remind you again, dear friends, that you cannot be both faithful and popular in this world. You just need to understand that. That is a fact of spiritual life. You will either be one or the other. But also remember that faithfulness will always result in eternal reward, whereas popularity will be kind of like a a um, a star that appears, one of those falling stars. You know how you see them. They're bright and glorious for a second. And then all of a sudden they just kind of peter out and disappear. God wants faithful contenders who are willing to suffer for a while. Yet with the promise of eternal reward, I was thinking about this this week and I was reminded of Paul's understanding, of course, of this concept of contending earnestly for the faith. And you will recall in Second Corinthians 11, beginning in about verse 23, you don't need to turn there, but there's a whole list of things where he describes the suffering and the persecutions that he endured, all of which demonstrated his passion to contend earnestly for the faith. Yet he would say in Romans eight, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then in second Corinthians four seventeen, he said, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, dear Christian, I want you to understand that these are great days of apostasy. And this world that lies in the lap of the evil one is moving inexorably toward the coming reign of Antichrist during the tribulation, just before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are moving towards a time of unprecedented apostasy at the coming of the age, at the end of the age. A sinful man abhors truth. They prefer darkness rather than light. But the truth of the gospel of Christ, for which we contend, is the only light that can dispel the darkness in men's hearts and souls. In fact, we read in John 3, beginning in verse 19, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And friends, as we near the end of the age and the coming of the Antichrist and the false prophet and the establishment of the final false religious system, Babylon, the great, the mother of all harlots that we read about earlier in Revelation 17, 5. As we move towards that time, we know that the apostasy will increase. And shall we say that the darkness will increase? We see this in our culture. We see it in our culture's Rosie O'Donnell-esque contempt for absolute truth. 
for biblical authority, for godliness. Now, there's even a church you can attend that scoffs at the idea of contending earnestly for the truth, but instead exalts the mystery of uncertainty, the emergent church that is gaining so much popularity. And as Satan, the God of this world, that appears as an angel of light, as he prepares the masses of humanity to ultimately believe his lies through Antichrist and the false prophet, he is orchestrating the world system to hate the chosen ones of God, the elect, namely his church, as well as the Jews, who are now apostate, but whom God has also called his elect and whom he will someday save when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, according to Romans 11:25, And we see this ever darkening spirit of our age as we look at our education system, as we look at our politics, as we look at our government, our laws, our entertainment, political correctness, as we look at our music. As we look at the feminist movement that is determined to destroy a biblical view of both men and women. As we look even at our youth. Who, for the most part, have no moral compass and each generation seems to be even more barbaric and immoral than the previous one. We see this, for example, in their dress. Many times you will look, you go down to the mall and you look at the youth and you will see Dress that somehow manifests what's in their heart. Dress that is defiant and vulgar and immoral, sensual, unkept, slovenly. Young men desperate to show their underwear. Young women desperate to show their body, to gain the attention of men. Friends, you must understand, if you're going to contend earnestly for the faith, that sin is ever mutating into ever more virulent strains of evil. And every generation is more vile and vulgar and wicked than the one before. I was thinking about this even in our secular culture. Think with me. We've gone from Andy of Mayberry and Little House on the Prairie to Sex in the City and a queer eye for the straight guy. And we've done that in just a matter of of a couple of decades. And the metastasizing corruption of sin has slithered into the church and infected the church. It's like a cancer that's now in the lymph nodes in these great days of apostasy. There are churches that call themselves Christian that completely reject the Bible as the inspired word of God that teach that all religions worship the same God, that would ordain homosexual pastors and insist that Jesus is just one way of many to salvation. Churches that will scoff at the doctrines of sin and the holiness of God and his wrath and his eternal judgment and even his second coming. Child of God, I plead with you once again to understand the importance of contending earnestly for the faith, come what may. As we approach the end of the age and as apostasy mounts, we must be warriors that proclaim and protect the truth. We must be those who live lives that testify to the transforming power of the gospel of Christ
and emanate, reflect the glory of the living God. But I warn you that this great battle that we must wage must begin, first of all, in your heart. And you must make a decisive commitment to live for the Lord Jesus Christ in ways that perhaps you are probably not currently living. The church is now full of casual Christians. I run across it all the time. And sadly, sometimes I see it in this church. Christians that are apathetic, kind of indifferent, passive, immature, shallow, undiscerning. And may I say, especially to you dear people, focusing primarily on you young men and young women that makes up the majority of this church. Young men, you're going to have to grow up. You're going to have to grow up and become great men of God. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, you need to be alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong. And young women, you must grow up as well and become great women of faith. You need to pattern your lives after the great women of old that knew the Lord so intimately and loved him and served him so faithfully that they had an impact that continues to be felt many hundreds and thousands of years later. Women like Sarah and Ruth and and Hannah and Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. You see, this is the heart of Jude's epistle. This is what it means practically to contend earnestly for the faith. It doesn't necessarily mean getting in some type of doctrinal debate with somebody over the Internet. Instead, it means living out a life that manifests the truth of the gospel of Christ and its power. A life that would shed light on a dark world. And now, as we come to this text, Jude is going to explain in further detail the importance of this command. And in verses 4 through 7, we will understand both the crime and the condemnation of false teachers, of apostates, of people that play church, that pretend to be followers of Christ. First of all, let's notice their crime in verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I want you to notice several things about these people as we look at this text and others that also describe the same. First of all, they will be clandestine and deliberately deceptive. Notice it says that they will creep in unnoticed. It means to slip in alongside of secretly. This is the idea of the tares amongst the wheat. It denotes literally that these people will intentionally choose to secretly sneak into a position of influence in the church and they will do so under false pretenses. You might say that their motives are sinister and secret. Under the pretense of godliness and a love for the truth, Peter says in 2 Peter 2.1 that they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, obviously, Jude was aware that this thing was going on in his day. And we know that five out of seven of the churches in Asia Minor were already in varying stages of apostasy as we look at Revelation 2 and 3. 
And certainly the Apostle Paul warned in Acts 20 that they will be savage wolves that will arise from among you, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. He also reminded us in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 6, that they will be the type of men and women that will enter into households and captive weak, captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I want to be very practical for you. Let me give you some examples of what types of positions these people might be in within the church. Sometimes they're going to be pastors. They're going to be people of great influence in a church, predators in pulpits. They're going to be on television. Sometimes they will be highly educated, educated from apostate seminaries. But very often we find them to be self-appointed pastors, self-styled, poorly trained, perhaps duped by other false teachers. And like physicians, medical doctors, who would be practicing without a license, these self-appointed physicians of the soul would be those who are committing spiritual malpractice because they have no accountability and really no training. We see this all the time. Most of the time, they're more entrepreneurs than anything else. And they will fall quickly in line with the seeker-sensitive movement, jump on that baddened wagon. But one common denominator that we see here in this text is that they will deny the lordship of Christ, ultimately meaning they're going to be unsaved. May I warn you that we should be on guard for any man who is unproven in his life and in his godliness. Paul tells us, for example, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 24, that some men's sins are obvious, but others are going to be revealed later on. And indeed, truth and time walk hand in hand. But it's important for you to also understand that not always will these certain persons that sneak into the church be pastors. Certain persons that he mentions here is nothing really specific, but it would refer to any apostate in a church, especially those who have a position of influence. But it could be a Sunday school teacher. It could be a youth director. It could be a Christian educator. It could be a Bible translator. It could be Christian writers, Christian publishers, musicians. Let me pause on that one for a moment, since I have so much experience having worked with the Christian music industry for so many years. Music industry is filled with greedy charlatans who know nothing of Christ, yet who routinely, quote unquote, minister to the body. I shudder to think of how Satan has used music to deceive the world, to propagate his lies, especially in the church. It's interesting, Socrates understood the manipulative power of music. He said, and I quote, if I can write the music of a nation, I care not who writes the laws, end quote. And friends, our culture's music is a powerful commentary on the apostasy of this age. It has become wicked beyond description. Inspired by the first created musician, 
the one who was once in charge of heavenly music and praise, the anointed cherub that Ezekiel tells us was filled with wisdom and perfect in beauty, that one that once hovered in the presence of the glory of God and then was cast out of heaven and now appears as an angel of light, Lucifer, the son of, a, the, son of the morning who opposes the Lord Jesus Christ, the bright and morning star. And now the pulsating rhythms and hypnotic beat of his diabolical music combined with the visceral, alluring sounds of the kingdom of darkness have slithered into the church. If you look at the history you will see that even a casual study of early recording artists, artists in our country who have had such a great influence on contemporary Christian music and gospel music today, you will find very quickly that they were people that were exceedingly ungodly. From Elvis to the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, whether it's rock, whether it's country, even Southern gospel, dear friends, the legacy of music, even in the church, is a commentary of the marks of an apostate. People that are filled with greed, deception, demanding fortune and fame and sexual favors. And you think about it. The great hymns of the faith, rich in theology and rich in their ability to teach are now considered passé. And so-called Christian lyrics are now, are now attached to the musical genre of the world. A mixture that frankly violates not only the profundity of spiritual truth, but also violates all that God would have for us in understanding His truth and instead exalts the sounds of Satan. And we call it worship. Well, not only have these apostates been those who are clandestine and deliberately deceptive, but Jude mentions a second crime, and that would be that they are spiritually and morally perverted. Notice he calls them in verse 4 that they are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Ungodly simply means without God. They are without God. They are godless hypocrites. They pose as Christians. And many will be so consumed with that self-deception that they will convince themselves that their faith is genuine. The Lord Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7, verse 22. He said, referring to that day of judgment, he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, we did all of these things in your name, all of these religious things. And he then will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So Jude says that these are ungodly persons, notice, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Licentiousness is a word that simply means unbridled living. Unrestrained sensuality. The Spirit of God does not dwell within them, so there is nothing to restrain the flesh. These will be men and women controlled ultimately by their lusts, by their passions. 
they will be slaves to their lusts. And what's fascinating, as you look here, they will exonerate themselves by appealing to the grace of God. Now, this perhaps could be an allusion to the Nicolaitans described in Revelation 2 that taught this very thing. Because of God's grace, you can just go ahead and sin and so on. I have discovered over the years that those staff members and associates and close friends and family who live in the inner circle of apostates will often see firsthand their ungodly behavior, their immorality, their greed, their irreverence. And if you look closely, many times you will be able to see it in their so-called worship services. Their third crime is that they refuse to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There at the end of verse four, he says that they deny our only master. Master means sovereign ruler. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, these will be people that refuse to bow to any authority. They bow only unto themselves. And they will even have contempt for authority because they profess Christianity, yet they deny Christ as their master. And because of that, they will constantly be exalting themselves and abusing grace, turning grace into a license to sin. If you study their so-called ministries, you will find that there will be an obvious lack of a number of things. There will not be any emphasis on the sovereignty and holiness of God. You will not find an emphasis on divine judgment. You will not find an emphasis on submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, on holy living, on being separate from the world and so on. Instead, what you will find is they will constantly be doing all that they can to become more like the world in order to win it. What a ridiculous defense. And since they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, they will also disregard the authority of his word, as we have studied earlier. The Bible will just be one other book that probably has errors in it. You don't know for sure. So you become the final arbiter of truth. You become the higher authority. And frankly, you can kind of make up what you want, if that's your belief. May I give you a special warning, dear friends? It is not always what apostates teach that is so dangerous. Many times it's what they leave out. If you eliminate certain truths long enough, you will be able to subtly sway people into believing something that is untrue. For example, if you never talk about sin and the holiness of God, the people will begin to think that sin and the holiness of God are really not that important. If you never talk about the sovereignty of God, you will gradually begin to think that he's not sovereign and on and on it goes. And I believe this has been one of Satan's strategies down through the years, one of his strategies to deceive. Let us raise up preachers and teachers who will dwell only on certain truths, maybe, for example, evangelism. I've been to churches where it doesn't matter what service you're in. It's always evangelistic. And as a result of that, the people gradually become dumbed down. They are illiterate biblically. They never develop any discernment. And they will be absolute suckers 
for the phonies that will begin to come in. There are rainbow trout that live in underground lakes found in caves, especially here in the United States. And it's interesting that these trout are blind, unable to see. And what's fascinating is the scientists tell us that they are not blind because they were born with some problem in their vision, but because they have lived so long in the darkness. I have been told also that if a person, a human being, lives in total darkness for approximately two weeks, he too will lose his ability to see. And I give this to you as a warning, dear friends, especially to those who may be listening to me who attend apostate churches that are absolutely pitch black with deception. Many times I hear people say, well, yeah, I, I, I know that our church is, boy, it's way off beat. But, you know, I just believe God has called me to be here to kind of help out. Or, well, yeah, I know there's, there, there, there's lots of problems here and they, re- they really don't teach much truth. But, but it's a loving place and all my friends are here. Beloved, that's nonsense. There's so many passages I could take you to. I think of Titus 3.10 right off the bat, where we are told to reject heretics. Not somehow support them. But here's the point. If you stay in darkness long enough, you will become blind to the truth. You will no longer be able to see. Jesus said in Matthew 6, that the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And sadly, I know people that have lived in the darkness so long, some by choice, some by ignorance, that now when the light of truth shines before them, they wince and want to cover up their eyes. It's, it's, it's hard to see, even as it would be hard for us to emerge from a dark cave into the sunlight without feeling some manner of pain. But my friend, may I say to you very clearly that Jesus is the light of the world. And his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And I would caution you against living in the darkness. And I would plead with you to come out into the full light of the truth and see your sin and see your Savior. So we've seen their crime, but what about their condemnation? What is God's response to these people who have slithered into the church and committed these crimes? And the answer here is also in verse 4, there at the first part of the verse, he says that these were those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Now, beloved, here is a fascinating testimony to the sovereign superintendence of God over apostates who would try and thwart his purposes. Here we see that their crimes have not caught him by surprise. In fact, he has even ordained their condemnation, it says, long beforehand. And to underscore the severity of their premeditated and reprehensible crimes, Jude gives three Old Testament examples of eternal destruction of apostates, judgments against apostate Israelites, angels, and Gentiles. Look with me here. First of all, 
his example of apostate Israelites in verse five. He says, now I desire to remind you, though, you know, all things once for all. In other words, though you are fully aware of this example, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And you will remember the story. God heard the cry of his chosen people and he sent Moses to lead them out of the bondage of Egypt. And he sent ten miraculous plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. An amazing demonstration of his glory and his power and his judgment against the wicked. As well as his redeeming grace for those that he loves. But what did the Israelites do after they were freed? Give God the glory? Oh, a little bit. But many, if not most of them, began to murmur and complain. They resented his prophet. They resented God's authority. They refused to trust and obey in all that God had called them to live out. They rebelled against God. And as a result, he subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, as the text tells us. In other words, God judged them for their rebellion. In fact, you could go to Numbers 14 and verse 2 and you can read what they said. Oh, would that we have died in the land of Egypt or would that we died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? So the Lord gave the complainers exactly what they wished for. You want to die in the wilderness? Okay, that's exactly what will happen. In Numbers 14, 28, he says, as I live, says the Lord. Just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you. So, beloved, here we have a powerful example of how God carries out his Promise to judge apostates who live wickedly among his people. Make no mistake about it, my friends. God will not be mocked. We have a second example here that Jude gives us, that of apostate angels. A second Old Testament example of eternal destruction on these people. And now these created beings that are apostate in their own right. Verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. And we've studied this before, but may I remind you that this is a reference to the demons who were once disobedient. Peter tells us in first Peter three twenty, in the days of Noah. That was when Satan and his minions conspired to corrupt the human race. In Genesis 6, we read of the Nephilim, a term that transliterates a Hebrew term meaning the fallen ones, those with great power able to crush others. These were demons that entered into men, possessing them, and then cohabited with females, the daughters of men, according to Genesis 6-2. And while we don't know fully all that was going on, perhaps they were trying to produce a mongrel progeny of demonically possessed human beings, fully human, though profoundly influenced by indwelling demons. But we do know that this was a wickedness that was so heinous 
that God permanently bound those demons. And we read about this in Second Peter 2, 4. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And Jude adds his commentary on it in Jude 6, because they did not keep their proper domain. And then we know in Genesis 6, verse 5, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He goes on to say that he was grieved over their sin. And then in verse 7, he says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. From man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then because God is gracious, he raised up a man named Noah to call them to repentance. And he did so for 120 years to no avail. And so God drowned them in a worldwide flood. 1,656 years after he created Adam, he destroyed the entire world. Many scholars believe that there would have been an estimated 7 billion people living on the planet at that time. He killed them all except eight people who found favor in the eyes of the Lord, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. So again, by this example, God makes it clear through his inspired apostle or his inspired servant, I should say, Jude, that he will not be mocked. That all the rebellious apostate renegades will be judged. And he gives one final example, that of apostate Gentiles in verse 7. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And of course, this is a reference to that story in Genesis 18 and 19. You will recall that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, now covered by the Dead Sea in the southeast corner, were notorious for their sexual perversions, especially the wickedness of homosexuality. And this only 100 years after God had judged the entire world by the flood. Amazing, isn't it? How quickly man forgets God's judgment. Amazing. The wickedness of Sodom became proverbial in the Old Testament. Even today, you will hear the term sodomite used to describe a homosexual. Certainly, you won't hear it in our politically correct media, but that, in fact, is what it is. A sodomite. In Genesis 18, to remind you of the story... The Lord and two angels took on human form and visited Abraham, promising him and Sarah a son. And the Lord told him that the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. And Abraham knew that his nephew Lot lived in Sodom and so he pleaded with the Lord interceded with the Lord to save them. And ultimately, as the story goes, God promised not to destroy Sodom if he could find even ten righteous people in it. Of course, he couldn't. And in Genesis 19, 
The two angels that had taken on human form departed for Sodom and Lot met them and took them into his house for hospitality and protection. And in verse five of Genesis 19, we read that before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. Now, can you imagine that a whole city of sexual perverts? And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. And then we know from the sacred text that Lot, having been heavily influenced by the wickedness of the people that he lived around, as well as because of his fear and foolishness, he offered his virgin daughters to them instead. But having been abandoned to the consequences of their lusts, these men were homosexuals and they did not want women, they wanted men. And so this huge mob of perverts, obviously resenting Lot's morality, as twisted as they had or as it had become because of his influence, being influenced in that culture, they threatened to treat Lot worse than what they purposed to do to the two strangers that he was protecting. These men were burning in their lusts. As Romans 1 tells us, will happen with homosexuals. And so they tried to break through the door. And you will recall the story. The angels reached out and pulled Lot to safety. And in verse 11, we, 11, we read that they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Can you imagine such lust? You're struck blind, and even after being struck blind, you continue to pursue the object of your passion to the point where you're exhausting yourself. So God utterly destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. He only rescued Lot and his daughters. In Genesis 19, verse 24, we read, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And Second Peter 2.6 also describes God's judgment. There we read that if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. So there again, dear friends, Jude gives... Another example of eternal condemnation for those who commit the unpardonable crime of deliberate rejection. A condemnation that was marked out beforehand long ago by a sovereign and a just God. May I close this morning with this thought. There was a story. We've all heard this story. A story that came to my mind as I was thinking about all that Jude is trying to tell us. Story of a man that had a camel. And he came to a place to camp one night, and the weather was inclement and cold, and the camel desired shelter even as the man, so the camel stuck his nose in the tent and began to sweet talk the man to try to get him to allow him to come in with him 
for shelter. And after refusing the camel many times, the camel finally sweet-talked him into at least letting his neck in after the nose was already in. And as the story goes, within another hour or two, more and more of his body came in until finally before the night was over, the camel's whole body was in the tent and the master was sleeping out in the weather. Beloved, I say that to simply remind you how important it is to guard yourself against those who would sweet talk you into compromising the truth in your life. We've got to learn to guard our hearts, to not be willing to compromise our convictions. Temptation can be so sweet, can it? It it can seem so irresistible. It can seem even necessary and certainly something inconsequential. After all, let's just let the nose in. After all, let's just let the neck in. We've got to guard it even in our family. How many times have I seen families destroyed by the sweet talk of their children? As a mom and a dad gradually capitulates to youth who are undiscerning and perhaps deceived. One day, dear friends, you may wake up and find that the camel of compromise now dominates your home, your family, maybe even your own heart. And certainly we must be on guard for this in the church. Oh my, what a passion it is of my heart. And the elders of this church, and I know many, most of you, because we have all been warned, haven't we, that there will be certain persons who will creep in unnoticed. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. May God grant us wisdom and strength to prevail in this great battle for the truth and for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these eternal truths and we ask that by the power of your spirit they would become such a powerful reality in our life that it will actually change the way we think and act beginning today. And Lord, may we see the fruit of all of this in the days to come as we endeavor to contend earnestly for the faith. May we do this for our good and your glory. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.